Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice... I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is The Possibilities of Compassion. This talk was recorded in 2014. In this episode, we learn to describe meditation as a way of making friends with ourselves. Through consistent practice, a natural compassion dawns for ourselves and for others. Today, we are joined by Laura Sims. Laura is an award-winning performer, writer, and educator advocating storytelling as a compassionate action for personal and community transformation. She performs worldwide for adult and young audiences and is a senior teacher of Shambhala Buddhist meditation. She continues to work in Haiti with girl groups, is the author of two books, and serves on the UN NGO Council for Global Education. Laura is also the co-director of Hands on Sierra Leone and directs the Hands Christian Anderson Storytelling Center. She has been a student of Chungim Trungpa Rinpoche since 1979. Here's Laura to take away the discussion. There is always a recognition that when we do pause and sit down and actually make the attempt to connect with our breath that even if it's only for an instant or at the very end there is a sense of melting a little bit um, of feeling some refreshment or at least a little more space that actually was here all the time, but somehow we either forgot or obstructed it, completely ignored it, or so unaware that it existed that sometimes it's a shock when you stand up for meditation practice. Do you know what I mean? The entire path whether you're a senior student or a very new student, is really about getting to know ourselves. Who are we? It's an odd kind of love affair. Because in order to discover the nature of egolessness or non-fixation on ourselves, we're getting to know ourselves. And we're really loving ourselves in the sense that we're experiencing some warmth in this adventure of at last taking a look at the most fundamental and most prominent aspect of our lives, which is our mind. And that's what we're doing in meditation. And as we practice, it's not so much that we're discovering something we taking something from the outside, some kind of um, new discovery of what's out there, it's actually an uncovery of what's been there all the time. 
which is a tremendous quality of space and presence. Even if our minds are berserk during the practice, which I'm sure none of you have experienced. <laughs> There's still that instant when suddenly, out of the blue, you remember and return to the breath. Sometimes. <laughs> the force of the allure, the hook of thoughts, is so powerful especially when they're interesting or particularly negative. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> but when we do like suddenly remember to come back, then we begin to discern between what it feels like to be totally in the grip of thoughts as if they're all pervasive, there really is nothing else. And they're letting it go. And even for a second, suddenly there's a sense that these thoughts, they may still arise, but they don't have to be as all-consuming or invasive as we very often allow them to be, and I'm not saying that as a judgment, because whoever told us that there was more to the show <laughs> than our own thinking mind, <laughs> trying to figure out how to be kind, or remembering how we should be or what we should do, or if we like this or don't like this based on an opinion assumption, something we learned, something we fear. It's a referring back always to our thoughts. So in this practice, suddenly, we have a new allegiance. And it actually is a brave allegiance, which is just momentarily <laughs> letting go. And what we are accessing is our actual natural state of mind. That experience is compassion. First, it's compassion for ourselves because it's a a relief from self-torment. And sometimes our thoughts are very engaging or it's like, um, you know, a, a kind of those TV shows that has endless episodes where at the end you think, I'm, I'm going to bed now. And then something happens. You think, well, I'll just watch for two minutes because then I might find out what happened. <laughs> And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, you just say finally, okay, I'm, I'm going to sleep, and then you can't sleep. Who's <laughs> trying to figure out who the murderer was. So it is um, a rest, a softening, a letting go of something. And sure enough, the longer we practice, 
the more interested we are in that. But it does take patience and time because of the habit and, and strong impulse to engage ourselves fully in the thinking as if the thinking is going to bring us peace of mind or peace in the world for that matter. So the first step is this sitting down and risking this other allegiance, which is to space herself, that it's there also. It's actually always been there. And as that deepens in our practice, the first step toward actually harvesting compassion is this sense of making friends with ourselves, which is not figuring out, well, now I'm okay and everything is good and jiba jiba, but more that we actually can be there with ourselves regardless of the nature of those thoughts or the situations in our lives. We don't have to blame ourselves or find endless fault with ourselves as if there's some damage, irreparable damage that happened to us as children and that it's hopeless, which is quite a dense story, very painful one that many of us believe for long periods of time, even when we practice. So it is making friends with ourselves, really making friends with our mind, with the fullness of our mind. And as you practice more and more, you're able to become more aware of the different qualities of our particular repeated habits. And we become interested in them, in this love affair, rather than Oh, I want to get rid of that one. <laughs> I don't like that one. I really like that one. It's more, oh, it's really interesting. It's softer. And we're getting to know the terrain of our own behavior. And that softening offers a lot of possibilities to us. And one is that it can begin to cheer us up a little bit because we actually have something that we can do with ourselves that is an alternative to self-misery and unnecessary suffering and blame. It's actually lightening up. And in that lightening up, actually, and in that more spacious quality of presence and that sense of making friends with ourselves, very naturally, we begin to look out and notice others and take a tremendous interest in them that is different from taking an interest in our thought about them. Follow what I'm saying? 
So suddenly, there is a quality of being able to have some distance and really take an interest in someone. Even if you immediately see somebody or a situation, you have an immediate flash of what you think and what you assume is going on, there is some ability because your mind is more settled to actually look again with some freshness. And it is the beginning of communication, genuine communication and interest. There is a quality of energy in that and relationship. You following this? There's a long period in this practice of discipline and patience. And it's patience with ourselves and then patience with situations in which our perception has more clarity and even more vivid sharpness. So there is a way of beginning to notice what's actually happening from what we assume is happening. And with that clarity, we are accessing, in some ways, our basic goodness, the, send the innate presence, the noble heart of the Buddha, <laughs> the unconditional nature of our mind, that unlike all of our thoughts that is constantly categorizing can be very useful and finding evaluations and outcomes, strategies and takeaways, There's some part of us that doesn't have to be engaged in that, that's untarnished by it, regardless of whatever we've done in our lives. And we begin to access that place. And it is through the trust more and more in that awareness that we actually have more perception of what is going on, more capacity to hear what somebody's saying unobstructed by our opinion or reaction. And that relationship becomes engagement. And the energy of the warmth is compassion itself, which is a natural intelligence. And actually the activity of our ordinary mind so it's not a list of things we should do or a way of, well, being polite or kind, which I means that's not bad. But when we are only being polite and kind without awareness, without relationship and warmth, we lack the skill to be engaged and to really be of benefit to ourselves and to others. Does this make sense? I, I wanted to tell a story that I actually, uh, excuse me, read on Facebook <laughs> that it was intriguing about an old woman who was shopping in Florida 
for groceries and came outside to look for her car. Did you hear this story? And she looked, and there she saw in her car four teenagers. And they were sort of bobbing up and down, um, uh, rolling the windows up and down. And she was outraged that they were breaking into her car. So she took her gun out, which she happened to have in her purse. (laughs) And um, the little lady went to the car, took her gun, and she said to them, look, I'm serious. If you don't get out of my car, I'm going to kill you. And these kids, terrified, fled. And she got in the car, shaken up, and then realized it wasn't her car. (laughs) which woke her up. (laughs) And she felt so appalled at what she had done that she went to the police station. And in the police station, she told them, you know, what had happened to her, little nice old lady with a gun. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) And the police officer said, well, wait a minute, and took her into a room where the four guys were there really writing up a report about a crazy old woman who had broken into their car with a gun. (laughs) And it is funny, because, I mean, it wouldn't be so funny if she'd killed them. And in my mind, I was thinking that either I didn't read the rest of the article because I was so interested in that part, or there was nothing more, and I thought, what would be my outcome if I was telling this story? And I thought, well, I would really love it if she took them out, all took them out to dinner, and then because she was such a ditzy person, they drove her home. (laughs) But I think we're, we're kind of in that state, aren't we? So often of not knowing what's actually happening, and therefore... There we are, fully armed with our our aggression or our reaction or our opinion, ready to pounce on a situation, and then boom. (laughs) So compassion is insight. It's the action of insight. It's the action of a mind that can discern between the obstructions, the habits, our um, bitter and constant uh, shutdowns, familiarity with that. It's not that we're always victorious over it constantly or they never happen anymore, but there is a wakefulness, even a humor and a tremendous curiosity about our own behaviors and the ability to pause. Like we have a natural pause button. And we can look again. So some of the possibilities of that are that we actually can help ourselves We may not enter the fray. We may not go down a habitual road. 
and we actually can have empathy for someone else's madness. Maybe, like the Dalai Lama says, well, I don't condone the activity of terrorists and murderers, but I know they have basic goodness. And it is that melting that allows us to finally discover how expansive our minds are, that we can have a larger view of what is going on in our lives. And at that moment, what's really at stake? Is it being right or the situation being less aggressive or less toxic? And I think it's um, an urgent time. And I used to sort of resent when Trungpa Rinpoche of the Sakyang said, you know, the only way to do this is through meditation. I would think, oh, yeah. But actually, I think there are ways to uncover it or to experience it in our lives because if it's natural and that is our state of mind, there's many ways in which we will always experience that. But to actually practice this essential journey of discovering our minds so that we have the strength to melt, (laughs) to soften in situations I think that meditation is precise and practical because it's working with the very core issue of our lives of what makes wars, what makes conflicts, what makes our self-degradation is our mind. Even though there are many, many situations, like there I am working in Haiti and I could say that the girls I work with in the camp who have been in that devastated place for four years have a lot of reasons, including vulnerability and rape and no sanitation or privacy. And yet they have an extraordinary quality of dignity and resilience and joy. So I often wonder, like, who's running the workshop really? So at some point, we're we're given a gift of knowing what to do because it needs to be done, not because we think it should be done or it's going to help somebody or invade somebody's life. But it's like what needs to be done is obvious because you have access to your intelligence and you feel a situation. And you actually have this area this connecting area between your intellect and your intuition. And that's another definition that Trungpa Rinpoche gave, that the area between intellect and intuition is compassion. And I loved that. The idea of communication not only being language, but just being present with each other or anything in the world is the key to our transforming ourselves. So I think we have a lot to discover about what the possibilities of compassion, genuine compassion, are for us. And there's not a single person who doesn't have access to that. I wanted to reiterate something from 
um, one of Rinpoche's books called The Glimpses of Mahayana, which is a beautiful little book. I mean, beautiful in what it looks like and also a, a kind of potent and bite-sized um, description of the Mahayana path or the path of compassion, which our practice naturally opens us into. So he said, we, it's all about communication. And that communication is connected with love and compassion. So I thought, wow, I could have really gone wild with that in the 60s. But the feeling of it, the intelligence of it, is not, um, you know, love and light, but love and compassion being an intelligent commitment to seeing things as they are. A whole other way of thinking about falling in love, isn't it? And he said, you start by communicating with yourself. So I don't think he's talking about, you know, texting ourselves. Hello. I'll meet you there. <laughs> I'll be on the cushion around 6.30. <laughs> and he said something really beautiful. He said, if you don't cut communication with yourself, if you are completely in communication with yourself, there is no problem. So now when we're talking about compassion and we're talking about what we are uncovering or activating through our practice, it's a whole other way of seeing communication as being present. Because being present, then you see. Not being present is a little like this. So I, I just thought that was a, a beautiful way, a helpful way to look at it, for me at least. Shantideva says, compassion is the sovereign remedy that perf perfectly allays all maladies. It is the wishing tree bestowing rest on those who wander weary on the pathways of existence. So I think of it as a kind of um, battery <laughs> that we can call on rather than being in situations and deciding like what we should do, which would be the best thing to do here in the solutions, actually showing up so thoroughly that we're engaged with whatever is going on and something always happens. There are harmful choices and then there are choices that we make out of presence and communication that are not aggressive. They may be strong they are full of energy. They may even be saying no. But it is different. 
from an activity that is meant to harm or destroy. And so the path really offers us a chance to begin to explore what that is. And our laboratory is our own mind. Ultimately, I think one of the great experiences of a well-practiced mind is regardless of circumstances, whether it's in the camp in Haiti or in the middle of a divorce or at the funeral of who we love the most. There is a joy that is always present not happy, happy, but it is an abiding quality of deep contentment of being present. So it's taken me a long time, I think, for this to be truly a reality so that I could say it. (laughs) And it not be something I'm seeking after or trying to understand but an experience of mind so someone come up to me and say oh you look so unhappy I say oh yeah I am thank you So I I don't know if I told this story before, but I I thought I would end with it. And it's a little teaching story from Iran. And I I think I did, but it doesn't matter. You might not have been here in any way. Who cares? (laughs) But um, there was a, a scholar and a judge who got sick and tired of his life, um, and decided to become a gardener. Do you know this story? You're story deprived. (laughs) And um, so because he was such a good scholar and his habit was to research everything, he got all the major books on gardening and he studied and researched and did an analytical analysis of, of what would be the best way to make a garden so that he chose the right plot of land, measured it, got the right tools. He bought excellent seeds. He did everything he needed to do so that he would have a really perfect, successful garden. And um, he planted the seeds, churned the soil, the water, blah, 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 not in that order. And when it finally blossomed, there was about 75% weeds. So he thought something was wrong with the soil. 
And so then he dug it up again, added more soil, did even further more intense research. There was no Google at the time. And he then got different tools and different understandings and different seeds and made different shapes and lines and planted one thing next to the other for perfect success. And there's about 85% weeds. And so then he thought, really, um, something must be wrong with the seeds. <laughs> and so he went to the royal gardener who knew everything and described intricately everything he had done in his plan. And the gardener said, uh-huh, mm, I see, I understand. And the scholar said, well, can you help me? And he said, yes, I can help you. I can actually tell you exactly what to do. And isn't that what we really want to hear? <laughs> and so the royal gardener said, you should learn to love weeds. <laughs> so, do you have any questions? <laughs> do you have any questions? Yes. Thank you for your talk. You're welcome. That was wonderful. Um, so, um, a number of years ago, I um, purchased a book soon after it was published called A Long Way Gone. And um, I didn't realize your connection to that book until the first talk of this year, Ethan had mentioned. Well, he talked about what was coming up, and he That's my son, Ishmael Bea. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, so that book was very difficult for me, mm -hmm. and I stopped reading it, which I usually don't do. Mm. And I think I stopped around page 50 or so. And when Ethan mentioned the connection to you and what this talk was about, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Now I've been practicing for two years. And um, in September, I saw, um, I went to a Pema Chodron retreat up at Omega uh, with Elizabeth Mattis Namgayo. Mm -hmm. And she talked about, um, two, both of them talked about compassion in a different way. Elizabeth talked about what she does. She rents documentaries. She lives in the mountains of Colorado. She rents documentaries. Elizabeth Mattis is an um, extraordinary uh, woman teacher who is the wife of Zigar Kantor Rinpoche. And she said she rents difficult documentaries. Hmm because she feels it's very important to bear witness and to practice bearing witness for the development of compassion. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, she lives in the mountains of Colorado. I live in Manhattan, in the city. I don't live in Manhattan, but in the city. So I'm constantly seeing things that touch your heart because they're difficult to see on the streets. You know? um, and then Pema, Ani Pema spoke about um, increasing the tender heart of sadness, I think she talked. And that's her practice right now. That's what she's working on personally. So when this came up about Ethan and your talk, and I pulled the book off the shelf again, and it's just sitting on my desk. So my question for you, 
is. Yeah. Should I go back and try and read it again? I think that's up to you. <laughs> so, because but you know, there's one very interesting thing about the book, and um, Ishmael was um, a child soldier in Sierra Leone, and he was um, <clears throat> at 11 years old when the war in C the civil war in Sierra Leone, West Africa, was already going on for maybe four or five years, and like anything, you think. Well, it's going on over there. It'll never come here. And as kids, they were having kind of like a boy's bake. They were somewhere in the bush, you know, cooking and carrying on. So they were not in their village. And they heard that the rebels were going to attack. And they started running back to their village and then saw the few people who survived it leaving and were informed that their parents had been massacred. And so as a child with his slowly diminishing number of friends with him, they lived in the forest for a year and then were recruited as child soldiers because, one, they were starving and needed shoes, and the other is you were given a choice that I, <laughs> either you did it or you were killed. So he was a an active child soldier for a little over a year, I think, or more. And then there was the long de-traumatization. And the book really outlines a lot of things, although it leaves a lot out. <laughs> and um, But the, the one part where I had something to say about it was buried in the middle of the text was this one page about high school in which um, he went to the United Nations School. I was an artist in residence there at the time. And, of course, the idea that they were going to have a child soldier come to the school was really uh, against everybody's intelligence, and I convinced them. And then um, they said, well, they'll interview him. So it, it took about two years for me to get him out of the war to the States and then to this interview, in which he's sort of... A, a, Somehow, a little bit, he met Nelson Mandela, actually, like a little bit like this charismatic presence of someone who's been through so much suffering and has seen so much of it and somehow found that place in himself, his own basic goodness. He's a very radiant being. So um, in this little part, it said, you know, um, in... When the war was going on, the kids in school suddenly said to him, hey, you're from Sierra Leone, were you in that war? And he said, yeah. And they said, oh, man, that's really cool. Like, did you see a lot of things? And he said, yeah. And they said, come on, tell us. And we had made a deal, myself and he, with the school, which was that he wouldn't tell anybody that he had been a soldier, child soldier, not because it was shame-producing, but because it would be the only way that people saw him, and they would have so much interest in that that he wouldn't be able to discover who he was outside of having been a child soldier and having been, at a young age, a colonel, actually, because he was so charismatic and such a natural leader. And so then he said, he, he had written this incident down, he said to the kids, well, one day I'll tell you about it. 
So I said, you should put that in the very front of the book so that people who read it, like yourself, and this is the way of the Odyssey as well. You know, Chucks, you know when you read the beginning that the war has already happened and that Odysseus was um, traveling and under tremendous obstacles for 20 years, but that he did get to Ithaca. So when you read the book at the beginning, the protection of the book is that you know that he was in high school in New York, <laughs> being a good kid. <laughs> and that then you can read it knowing that. So the natural tendency of our mind when we bear witness is to be obliterated by suffering and to feel that our lives are worthless compared to the suffering of others. And so therefore, it really allows you to know that at the end, he will come through this. I mean, not everybody did, but in this story, he does come through it, which I think is part of the power of it, that compassion to those people who will read it so that you can bear witness. But only you can judge, uh, you know, that. The Pema is a long time, very realized practitioner. And so the path doesn't stop. It keeps deepening. And, it, you know, there's a whole periods where you might feel sort of revulsed by yourself. <laughs> or like, this is a waste of time. <laughs> or whatever it is. Or like, I can't do this anymore. I'm just, I don't want to see those things. Where there's some point where it becomes like, you do want to see it. Because to liberate it is not only to liberate yourself, but to be even more insidiously helpful to others. <laughs> But um, he just wrote a new book. He's yeah. actually... And I actually, I saw him on, I think it was Stephen Colbert. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was... But he was so great. He was terrific. <laughs> Stephen Colbert is Stephen Colbert, but he and was Stephen just Colbert terrific. Stephen Colbert was very funny. He's very funny, but yeah. yeah. He's, he's quite good. Yeah. I might try it again, I think. I think uh, with the meditation <laughs> practice, there's a, a little bit of an inner strength that's developed also to lean in a little bit more maybe rather than leaning away yeah. you know? or notice or to notice it, to yeah. notice what's going yeah. on with your mind the yeah. more you practice the more strength you have to actually notice what's going on without getting caught mm -hmm. or when you're caught knowing you're caught right. and being able to soften yeah. so it's a, a flex one of the possibilities of compassion is pliability of mind but it is a journey. So do what you can. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for this. This was my first time here, and it was, uh, I enjoyed it immensely. It, it was much different. Uh, I've been practicing transcendental meditation for a couple of years now, and so it's much different because with that you have a mantra and your eyes are closed. And so keeping my eyes open was really challenging at first and because um, I just naturally wanted to go into that. And so, but it was really, it was really interesting because I felt, I really did feel what you were talking about with the awareness and everything was a lot more powerful than with uh, TM. So my question is, 
is it possible to do two meditation practices or how does, or is it better to just pick one and stick with it? Um, and you know, that's, that's my question. Well, I guess, you know, you have, you're the best judge for your life. Um, Trungpa Rinpoche used to tell us all the time to really, you know, if you get on the path, stay on the path. Because then it's not that this path is better than that path, but then you deepen what you're doing. You deepen your experience. Um, I truly appreciate practice with my eyes open after all these years because um, if you think about practice on the cushion, it's a, a small period of time in our lives and it takes um, an exertion, of course, and it has a particular um, technique that we do. And it's not so that that half hour you feel a lot better and then you go out and you can just screw up for the rest of the time. There's um, post-meditation practice. So this actually helps so that we become more familiar with our mind in our everyday lives. A practice is practice for what? It's practice for being in our lives. Eventually practice for being in the world. And if you continue on the path for being a bodhisattva or someone who's communicating with oneself but not fixed on oneself, getting everything for oneself, there's a great joy in working with others and bringing everyone along. I once in one of these sessions asked the question, can you imagine what would happen if everyone was relieved of their... Um, habitual patterns, if everyone was relieved of their unnecessary desire to have only for me, what would happen in the world? So then you become interested in that. Helpful? Thank you. Yes, very but, much so. You know, if you'd like to do, I don't know, is TM the one where you get to levitate? <laughs> if you go to Iowa? Yeah, I, yeah in the middle of the cornfield. So that's not bad. <laughs> anyway, you're welcome. <laughs> do you levitate? No. Um, <laughs> could you do that for us, please? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, each practice, obviously, we're working with the mind, and we know so little about what the possibilities of our minds are, don't we? This is a very practical, solid, and deeply psychological practice. One last question. Oh, hi. So today was your first meditation instruction. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've never meditated before. I never... <laughs> thought that I had the kind of mind that could do that. I'm an, I'm an entertainer and, um, you know, I have a lot of pop culture references and all kinds of things always <laughs> going through my head and, you know, if someone says a word, it goes to a song lyric, you know, it's very hard for me to sort of focus in and since this is my first time, I did struggle, especially with keeping my eyes open and I can't help but feel like uh, I failed. Mm -hmm. So. 
I did find that when I started thinking about breathing again, that it, it did change the channel to where I was supposed to be. Um, I just sort of feel like I, I want to continue because also right now I just got a job as a figure model at SVA. So I, I want to keep my mind in somewhere healthy while I'm staying still for so long. So I feel like this was the right <laughs> place to go. Um, <laughs> so I'm just trying to figure out what's next. How do I improve? How do I continue? Well, I think the, there are two things, and, and one is to have a, a, a practice. Right. Because if you think about it, of those entertainers who really sometimes hold the, open the heart of an entire audience or bring people to incredible presence just even by standing there. So um, it's recommended that we, if we want, to make a commitment to at least 10 minutes a day and then really just sit there through those 10 minutes, even if we have a kind of thought attack, habitual thought attack that you're failing or this is worthless or I better write the lyrics down to a song. I remember Allen Ginsberg asking Chung Rinpoche if he could take a pad and a... Um, pen on retreat and Rinpoche saying no. <laughs> you know, just sit. But at 10 minutes a day is even, if you make the commitment, that makes a, a sort of dent in our habitual pattern. And what's really good about coming to a center or place to practice is that you're with a lot of other people, so it, it's, you're more likely to stay on the cushion than pop up to answer the phone or feed the cat or, or whatever it is or, you know, uh, wow, great thought, man, I'm going to write it down right now. <laughs> um, so it's, it's the continuity and also um, attending talks and reading and studying is good because in, with others, I think we forget all the time. So even though these talks can be very fundamental and, and it might be, oh, I heard this already, it's it's always good to remember the most fundamental thing because it's not a path like it's going on a road and the road is going and it's getting greener and more gorgeous and it's more like it's like potholes right. <laughs> and it's opening up, <laughs> getting deeper and richer, mulchier, and less fixed. <laughs> and then also then you're looking out and seeing the world, so it's a different kind of map. But I would, um, you know, you could take a, a very simple, a weekend or a day-long class where you get meditation instruction again and, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe for all of us, you know, if, if, um, if you can, depending on our lives, make some commitment to attempt to sit at least 10 minutes a day, then that continuity helps to strengthen the mind. Because everything about our lives and our world is pulling us out of it. Sometimes I'm shocked. You know, after 37 years, I forget about it for a week or two. And it's like, what, how, how did that happen? You know, it's so funny because it's so much a part of my life. But our minds are really forceful. Our thinking is very forceful. And everything's pulling us out. Boom. 
But then to be there, it's very interesting. You know, you could be about to really lash out, and all of a sudden you just come back. And everything opens and changes. So we're taking responsibility for our own minds and our own lives, and there's tremendous strength and compassion in that. Being vulnerable in that way is not being weak. Helpful? Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know, ask around at the desk or something. And, but it is good if you step on a path to really keep going. If you think this is your path, and, and you know it when it is. So, um, thank you very, very much, and I'm really delighted that we had this um, snowy night together. (laughs) Among Native American people, it's the only time to tell stories, (laughs) is in the winter, because otherwise you're in the cornfield. And um, so, thank you. Uh, helplessness, that's a really good one. Watch yourself when a feeling of helplessness arises. I don't want to stay with that. We immediately go into action. So that's a good practice ground. Whatever emotion you think you can't handle, try to sit with it just for a second. Just like, could I just, it's a sensation, right? At the basics level of the first skanda, first I just notice it as a form. And then I immediately have a preference whether I like this emotion or not. And then I strategize and I give it a label and then I have a whole story about it. But could I practice just being with the immediate felt experience of that emotion? Just for like a nanosecond. And then I can like create the whole story again. But could I practice just coming back to the form level or the pre-form letter of just noticing the experience? And that will help direct you towards the bigger question of like, why can't I just hang out with basic goodness? So um, thank you all for coming. And we're going to have a little reception afterwards if you want to stay and chat some more.